Welcome, welcome, welcome to Above Replacement Radio. I am your host, Chris Gianta. I might be becoming a bad baseball fan who can't enjoy the romantic things because of advanced statistics. 15 years from now, I want to be on the early baseball committee. Over there on the other side of the screen is Daniel Curran. I literally have the Fangraphs hoodie, the baseball reference t-shirt. Just repping some stats, you know what I'm saying? It's not necessarily Hall of Fame. It's not necessarily above average, but we can guarantee you we are better than just the standard replacement level college sophomore. And welcome to Above Replacement Radio, where we're talking baseball kind of whenever. I'm your host, Chris Gianta, over there. On the other side of the screen is Daniel Curran. How you doing, Daniel? Chris, I'm doing very well today. Uh, the end of the regular season is upon us. Uh, it's even kind of passed. Yesterday was game 162 for every team not named the Mets and the Marlins. But uh, postseason baseball is upon us. Uh, it is October 2nd today. Uh, a day past the four-year anniversary of Above Replacement Radio, and for the fifth time on the show, we will be talking about uh, the wild card game slash series. Yes, yes, quite, quite a, quite a bit has has uh, happened or changed since, since, uh, since we started doing this. You know, four yeah. years ago, uh, to the day of yes, to the date of yesterday. So yeah, mm-hmm. cheers, cheers to us, keeping it going. Um, yeah. but yeah, it's uh. You know the playoff. The playoff bracket is set. Um, some things uh, changed from last episode to this episode. I mean, there's a new AL West leader and therefore new AL West champion. Not um, really a new AL West champion. Yeah, yeah. It is a. <laughs> it's the same AL West champion, but it, they were not in first place the last time we talked, which was about 48 hours ago. Uh, yeah. yeah. The the Astros, Astros win the win the AL West. You know props to them they they you know went out and swept the d-backs rangers you know lost a series to the mariners yeah the astros played a heck of a series against the diamondbacks uh diamondbacks pitching actually looked really good on friday and saturday uh gallon went out there and shoved merrill kelly went out there and shoved on saturday i believe ryan nelson pitched yesterday but uh you know and the, they did come alive that offense but uh the astros pitching stepped up they limited the diamondbacks with runners in scoring position they made Jeremy Pena made a game-saving defensive play uh, on, I believe it was Friday, um, which was big because the Astros were, you know, they were playing for something up until game 162, which is odd, not something we're used to. Um, and you know what? They came through when they needed to. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And one thing that I like realized as I was putting notes together for, you know, the, the playoff preview of, of, you know, these next four series is I did not realize how big that division win was going to be just based on matchups and, yeah. and how it line, how it lines up because the two seed, which was going to be the AL West winner, no matter what the two seed, they get the right now, they get the winner of blue Jays twins. The five seed gets the, uh, gets, gets the, the race. Um, now, yeah, who then has to play the uh, the Orioles if they win. Yeah, and then you have to play the Orioles. So the difference for the Astros winning, they went from uh, having to face the Rays, then potentially Orioles, to having you know the first series off and then facing mm-hmm. the winner of Blue Jays Twins. I mean, that is yeah. that is really ideal for, for the Astros or whoever mm-hmm. was going to win that AL West. Shout out to the Blue Jays for tanking for the sixth seed. Yes. Um, you know, I mean, you don't want you know, you don't want that path where you got to take on the Rays and then Blue Jays. Um, and then you know, if the if the Astros 
if the Rangers won yesterday, you could have avoided the Astros until uh, what the ALCS then. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, yeah, Which, I guess to be fair, they're gonna avoid the Astros till the or no, they have to face the Astros in the ALDS. But yeah, it's uh, it's tough. Yeah, I I guess we didn't know it heading into Game One Sixty Two because we thought you know maybe the Blue Jays were gonna be that we're gonna be that five seed because it was possible. But yeah, they lost and they take the six seed, which is ideal. You know, I think everybody out there would rather face, you know, the twins than the rays. Uh, however, you know, that however the seeding may work, it, that, that's, that's the case. You're facing a, uh, an 87 win team over a 99 win team. Uh, yep. that's, that's MLB playoffs. So yeah, I mean, blue Jay, you know, blue Jays got a bit lucky there. Astros took advantage of, um, took advantage of, the opportunity and get, you know, get that by and get the winner of blue Jays twins were, yeah, the Rangers. I mean, I, you know, I like this might go into my prediction a little bit, but the Rangers unfortunately are in a pretty bad spot, you know, having to come off a road trip and go into Tampa Bay to face a 99 win team who has all their starters rested. It's in a, it's, in, a in a best of three series. Nonetheless. Yes. Like uh, the wild card series, I think is so brutal. I think, you know, this will also get into my predictions, but uh, like when you play 162 games and then you play another one and you lose that one and all of a sudden your season's on the line, like I think it just does stuff to teams mentally because since 2020 we've seen 12 best of three wild card series and only three of them have gone to a decisive game three. There have, and there have been nine sweeps. Yeah, yeah. I mean, having to play in this series is, you know, I mean, if if, if it's a if it's a close race between you and the other team, like it's, it's tough. It is very tough. It is very tough. And especially like, you know, the teams that didn't really have much to play for, which also includes the twins heading into, uh, you know, heading into this week, they are at a supreme advantage because you have, you have to have teams going out there with their three, with like their number three starter, unfortunately for them yep. uh, to start a series, which is not ideal. Whereas, yeah, the teams that didn't, you know, really have much to play for, they are at a pretty supreme advantage. And I think that's very much exemplified with like the Rays. Yep. Especially yeah, a no. team, not not a lot of pitching depth there, starting wise. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. So, I mean, anything more to get into about this past weekend before or outside of the, you know, the player departures and stuff? Um, no, I mean, I, I, the Mariners missed the playoffs is very disappointing, obviously. You know, I think it's a team that a lot of people wanted to see in October, um, but, you know, a lot just went wrong. You can point to the fact that they went 4-6 and six over this final 10-game span with, you know, Julio Rodriguez hitting 111, but in the grand scheme of things, like, you got to look at the games they lost in April and May, because they were a 500 team for a while. Um, and ultimately, you know, when you miss the playoffs by two games... It's easy. It's easier to think about the games you lose in September than it is the games you lose in April and May. And the Mariners lost a lot of games in April and May. Uh, someone pulled up on Twitter. I think it was like their lineup from like the fourth game of the season. Um, and it's stuff like that where, you know, if, if they had more guys ready at the beginning of the season, if they committed more to their offense, we could be talking about the playoff Mariners right now. Yeah, I mean, when you're, yeah, they were 38 and 42 through the end of June. Yeah, 38 yeah. and 42 through the end of June. That's not going to cut it. Yeah, like you you can't, you know, as, as a team, and I'm, you know, this wasn't, it's not like the Mariners planned this, but as a team, 
you know, you can't you can't set yourself up for a comeback every time. I mean, this happened this happened to them in 2022 as well, and it, it uh, worked out for them. They want to, you know, they went, were hot enough to make the playoffs and eventually win a playoff series, but you know, they didn't get in that comfortably. They were, I don't know, like a few games ahead of the competition, and but it worked out for them. Whereas, yeah, this year, like they had. It was it was crazy competition. The fact that an 88 win team in this playoff format doesn't make the playoffs is pretty surprising, especially considering the records we saw in the NL. But yeah, that's that's the way it shook up. And, and you know, we knew that AL was going to be competitive with the uh, with the playoff races. And unfortunately, you know, when you when you start out so poorly or just plain old average for the first three months of the year, yeah, it's, it's going to hurt you in the end. Yeah, um, Cal Raleigh made some comments after the game. I don't know if you saw this, but he kind of talked about how like they needed to commit more to the offense uh, and make moves, uh, whether it had been at the deadline during the offseason. And pretty much every player was like, yeah, I agree with him. So it really sounds like uh, Jerry DePoto is under some pressure this offseason, whether it be to re-sign Teoscar Hernandez to bring in some new bats. Uh, because I think the pitching staff in the bullpen, you know, are a strong suit in the team right now. It w- obviously, it wouldn't hurt to make additions if you can, but you know, there's a clear priority for the Mariners this offseason. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, like if they were to make the playoffs, they would have been one of the weaker lineups uh, within the bunch. Um, mm-hmm. you know they they would have been a uh, a a uh, they would have been a team that relied on like timing and clutch hitting, which is kind of what they did. Uh, that which is kind of what they did uh last postseason, but but yeah, I know I remember last postseason like after they went off on Verlander, um, in game one of the ALDS, they that offense kind of shut down, and mm-hmm. yeah, I mean as as an offense this year, they weren't yeah they weren't really that much better. They they made some additions. Unfortunately, some of them didn't work out. Like. You know, Colton Wong was a, a huge flop, yeah. unfortunately. Like no one really expected that. I complimented the move. I thought it was a, I thought it was a very productive, especially getting Winker out of there. But uh unfortunately, like I, yeah, I was I was trying I was trying to look for where Seattle ranked in like the second base department um in uh in offensive stats. I mean they were twenty second in second base, uh in second base weighted runs created plus. So um, you know, that, that was unfortunate that put them behind and, uh, and yeah, I, I should look at where they rank overall in like runs scored and weighted runs yeah. created plus and all that. Uh, AJ Pollock ended up being a dud, uh, 138 plate appearances this year, a 53 OPS plus, um, you know, that's not going to cut it. Even if he wasn't going to be, you know, he hasn't been a league average bat since 2021, but you know, I mean, even then, if he had an 88 weighted runs created plus, that would have been sufficient. Or at least a lot more sufficient than fifty-three. Right, right. That's about a hundred points of OPS in difference. Yeah. So actually, um, Seattle was ninth in weighted runs created plus, but that is park adjusted, and uh, OPS has them at sixteenth in the league. So mi- more middle of the pack when you take away the park adjustments. Um, so you know, it, you consider that what you will. I think they have a decent amount of fl- financial flexibility. They have enough depth in both the bullpen and starting rotation to kind of not prioritize that over the off season. So, you know, we'll see, we'll see about it. I think 
you know, some, some more power out of the outfield uh, and, and some more, you know, something out of second base might, might help them out. But, you know, it, I'm sure DePoto will, will have something, something surprising for us. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they did fold in September, but you know, ultimately you got to think back more to April and May than you do any other month for the Mariners. Yeah. 100, 100%. I, I totally agree with that. Like, it is it is easy to just use what recently happened to define the mm-hmm. season, but it was really the first three months of the year. Um, all right, so I guess that leads into uh, a, a a segment we haven't done before. Yeah. Um, it's it, it's interesting. It's good. It's good reflection because I think most sh- most just sports shows don't have this have t- this type of re- of reflection on like you know what did we get wrong, what did we get right, and we're not gonna go over every single prediction that we made because mm. we made a lot of them uh but we're just going to go over three narratives do, do you want to just go into it real quick yeah so we're going to go with three narratives of ours that were correct and incorrect this year so you know before the season we obviously made our predictions we had our thoughts about various teams various players various uh things without the league or throughout the league rather and you know, we all we obviously watched it all play out over the last six months, and things changed. Some things we were vindicated on. Uh, so I think we're just going to be talking about some things that we, you know, said this this year before this year that turned out to be correct, uh, and things that we were wrong on. So I think we should start with three narratives that we got right. I'll go first with my first one. Um, this one goes back to one of my players to watch, a guy who maybe doubled down on the things that I said about him early in the season, Andre Pallante remains the most unique uh, pitcher in baseball when it comes to batted ball data. Um, Andre Pallante, if you don't know, is a reliever for the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, on the on the surface, his stats don't look fantastic. He had a 470-60 RA this year. Uh, did, you know, give up a lot of hard contact at times, but um, he has a very interesting batted ball profile in which he had, last year, he had a 65% ground ball rate. Uh, and the thing that was so unique about him was that he did it with a four-seam fastball. Uh, anytime you see a guy with a ground, you know, with a lot of ground balls, it's usually a guy with a sinker, a guy with a cutter, even almost never is it a four seam fastball as their primary pitch. And Polante's uh, fastball had a negative 10 degree average launch angle in 2022. Well, this year he he bumped it up a mile per hour. Uh, he added one mile per hour to his fastball, and his launch angle against it was negative 17. He had a 77% ground ball rate this year, a 7.1% fly ball rate. Uh, both of those are overwhelmingly the highest and lowest in baseball. A sweet spot rate of 19.5%. That's unheard of. An average launch angle of 11.6 degrees, a negative 11.6 degrees, excuse me. Um, so he was really awesome to watch this year. And everything that I was so fascinated about him by this year, he doubled down on. So my first narrative that I got right was Andre Palante's uniqueness with his ground balls and his fastball. Yeah, we we love to see that. And I'm... I'm so I'm so happy, genuinely happy you got to see the Josh Bell versus Andre Pallante <laughs> yes. matchup and that you got to see Andre Pallante twice in one year as a guy who went to like mostly American League ballparks, if I'm not mistaken. Two American League ballparks to see him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, you saw him at yep. two American League ballparks. Yep. Shout out to the new schedule. We get to see Andre Pallante more. Shout out to the new schedule. Honestly, yeah. I'm kind of a fan after one year. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not bad. Like either. 18 interleague games or 46 interleague games. I'm fine with, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was pretty cool. 
I mean, checked checked a, a couple teams off the list on teams I haven't seen this year yeah. in person. Yeah. Um, and uh, and yeah, went to a new ballpark, which is cool. So, I went to uh, my first, yeah, my uh, my first narrative, yeah, Daniel checked off a bunch. I think like mm-hmm. five or something. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of them. Um, my first narrative I'll get into is, uh, I like the uh the Braves domination. Like I I was really high on the Braves this year. Um, I had them, you know, winning the NL East and also taking the one seed and I was very adamant about it. And there was a reason why I had them as world series winners, um, heading into, heading into this year. Uh, you know, I, I was really high on them. I went back to listen to our predictions episode and I listened to what I said on the Braves and much of what I said came true. I said, Acuna, Acuna and Olsen are due to bounce back or are due to progress and improve their numbers. I don't. I didn't expect it to that degree. I'll, I'll tell you that I didn't expect Acuna to be, you know, an you know a, a runaway MVP candidate and Olson to hit 54 home runs. But you know that was one of the things I said. Uh, I could see an innings jump from Spencer Strider. Spencer Strider threw 180 innings, uh, had one of the best FIPS in baseball. Unfortunately, his ERA trailed a little bit, but he was still one of the most productive players in baseball this year. Um, and along with that. Um, and, and yeah, I, I predicted, uh, Austin Riley as MVP. That's not going to come true, but he was one of the best third basemen in baseball this year. Um, and yeah, I, I was, I think with how adamant I was about the Braves being good, they totally came in spades with that. It finished with what, 104 or 105 victories. Um, Something like that. But, but, uh, overwhelmingly, you know, best record in baseball this year, at least by a few games. So that's, that's something I was right about. Um, you know, not everybody had the Braves winning the NL East, but uh, I had them as a as a one seed, and uh, happy about that. What is your second second correct narrative? So my second correct narrative. This is not exactly a very fun one because it kind of it vindicates something negative I said about a team. But uh, the Royals' development from last year wasn't enough, and it might be all we have, uh, which is very unfortunate. A lot of people like the Royals as a sneaky. Uh, you know, maybe a sleeper team, a team that could find its way to 75, 80 wins. Uh, I had them finishing last in the AL Central, uh, and they obviously went, I believe, 56 and 105 or something like that, 57, 105. Um, they lost a lot of games, and they finished. They were they were competing for the with the Oakland A's at times for worst record in the league, and that's you know a team that was actively trying to lose, but. You know, it does suck how it happened because a lot of the guys that we hoped would take steps forward this year really didn't, with the exception of Bobby Wood Jr. Um, he did put up a 120 OPS plus this year with plus defense and base running, which is exciting. Uh, but Vinny Pasquantino, unfortunately, hit the 60-day IL in June and never came back. Uh, but even when he was out there, he had a 108 OPS plus. Nick Prado uh, did not take a step forward. Uh, MJ Melendez did have some uh, tough luck with his expected numbers compared to his uh, on the surface numbers, but ultimately he remained a below average hitter by OPS plus. Uh, Brady Singer did not take the step forward that we hoped he would after last year. Um, and, you know, we did end up seeing a couple interesting pieces towards the end of the season with, with Cole Reagans, uh, with Michael Garcia, with um, Edward Olivares, and uh, who was the other guy they got? Oh, Nelson Velazquez, you know, guys that were interesting, but you know, the team still has one of the worst farm systems in baseball. 
Um, and I think my fears preseason are pretty correct in that w- the development we saw from the Royals last year is kind of all that's coming. You know, we look at the Orioles last year, and it's like, you know, they have all this young talent, and there's more coming. You can't really say that with the Royals. Yeah, yeah, is, yeah, for know, sure. It's a, it's a team that's had a lot of early draft picks that they just have not hit on. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. It's it is very concerning what the long term picture looks like for this franchise, especially with how deep they already are in the rebuild. Right, right, yeah. And I, I was someone who had them ahead of the Tigers, and I was like, yeah, I mean, you know, it. it I understood. I understood being low on them, but I'm like, hey, you know, they could have some, you know, uh, you know, some guys in their second year who who keep developing, and I, you know, that did happen with Bobby Witt Jr., but that didn't happen with everybody. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, obviously just too many holes in that roster and it led to a pretty disastrous season. And, and yeah, I mean, things look very, very bleak in Kansas city uh, from a baseball perspective. Um, so yeah. Uh, so my second uh, correct narrative, it revolves around a player. Uh, you know, I, I have, I've, I've talked about him in my, in my Twitter bio now. Um, and it is the idea of Jose Ramirez being better than Manny Machado and Nolan Arenado. Um, I I would say like I I think I still think he's the best third baseman in baseball. Although I think it's debatable, but I think it's not debatable right now of who's better between him, Nolan Arenado, and Manny Machado. You know, Arenado and Machado both had down years uh jose ramirez kept doing what he does he had a five win season and that was technically a sort of a down year for him but he still had a yeah yeah, he he's he still had a you know a five win season on on both websites he had a productive defensive year he had a 2020 season yet again uh 2020 he's had a 2020 season every year since 2018 except for the shortened covid year and he's the only player only player to do that um and uh and yeah he he kept my narrative I'm, I'm very adamant about jose ramirez being the best third baseman in baseball i think it's debatable right now between him and austin riley i'd still put ramirez over riley but i, I would understand the arguments for riley um but i think my narrative of him being better than arenado and machado uh was was definitely held pretty firm uh here because i thought he was the best third baseman in the league coming in and you know he was tied with Riley for best uh best F four among among third basemen this year. So um happy happy he continues succeeding. Um hope he gets the the recognition at some point. Um what do you got for the third narrative? For my third narrative, uh we met we I I didn't I wasn't too adamant about this in the in preseason, but you know it was definitely mentioned and man do I feel vindicated on it. Uh, the shift ban would be the least impactful of the three major rule changes. Uh, I think it kind of goes without saying that the shift ban was was the least impactful. I mean, the pitch clock uh, decreased the t- average time of game by about like 30 minutes or so, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Um, the, the number of, you know, the stats are all over there, you know, all out there where it's like, you know, the average time of game is lower. The number of three-hour games is much lower. The number of two-hour, 30-minute or less games is much higher. There was, like, three sub-two-hour games this year or something like that. Um, yeah, it felt very clear that the pitch clock maybe was the most impactful, but, you know, the bigger... I'm looping in the bigger bases and the pickoff rule together 
um, because they kind of go with each other. But stolen bases obviously went up this year. We had a thousand different players setting records based on stolen bases. We're like, you know, Estory Ruiz broke the AL rookie uh, stolen base record. Ronald Acuna went 40-70. Um, Bobby Wood Jr. went like 30-50 and 50 or something like that. Um, or maybe not 30-50, and 50, but like, he, you know, he had a it was lot 30 of big and... home run in power season. Yeah, it was 30 and 49 uh, at some point. I forget if he got to 50. Yeah, he was like one away, right? Something like yeah. that. Uh, Corbin Carroll became the first rookie to have like 25 home runs and 50 steals. Um, like steal, stolen bases were way up this year. Uh, the stolen bases per game was at its highest point since 1997 this year. So the impact on that might be the, you know, the most clear. I mean, between the pitch clock and the, uh, you know, and the uh, bigger bases and the pickoff roll, I think those two were incredibly impactful you saw it every single day the shift ban no one really uh paid that much attention to the league babbit on pulled ground balls by lefties went up from yes 147 last year to 180 this year that is a 30 point increase but it was 189 in 2017 like it still isn't a crazy amount a 180 babbit still isn't very good even if it is better than 147 uh the league batting average overall went up by a total of uh, five points over last year and it went up and went down four points from 2019 so you know i mean i think we have we are able to keep the narrative that the shift ban was the most or the least impactful uh rule change yep yep uh yeah stolen bases uh per per team per per team game went from 0.51 to 0.72 uh yeah. league batting average on ground balls in general went from 241 to 248. Uh you asked you asked me as an over under um you know 250 average on on ground balls this year and I said, you know, 250 or over and uh yeah, I was wrong about that. Yeah, um but it, it was a good line. It was a, it was a yeah, like you <laughs> it was a good odds Two maker right off. there. Yeah. Yeah. Um so my uh my third narrative unfortunately is uh negative um and and yeah, I mean, no one wanted to see it happen, but it's my continued non-belief in the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. Uh, unfortunately for them, they continued to lose and and disappoint a lot of people, uh, not to the fault of Shohei Otani, obviously, not really to the fault of Mike Trout. He got hurt, but, you know, I didn't mean to get hurt, obviously. And, you know, you know, uh, Daniel, you... you you're you're very high on the angels but you're not the only one i mean a lot of people had uh had them as a playoff team this year um yeah. i looked i looked i looked at some you know preseason columns and preseason stuff five of five out of six cbs sports writers uh had the angels in their playoffs and also fangraphs gave the angels the second best playoff odds in the american league west behind the astros uh and you know ahead of the rangers and mariners and yeah i just i did not buy in. I had them in fourth place this year at the trade deadline. I did not think it was a good move to buy. And, you know, they, I, 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 I was proven correct throughout time. Uh, unfortunately, it's not something I really wanted to see, but there is a little bit of vindication there because, you know, they, they did not. Yeah. They didn't really, they, they weren't even exciting at the end. Unfortunately, they, no. they completely collapsed. So yeah, my continued non-belief in the Angels paid off, and I I was proven correct in that in that standpoint. Um, this is this kind of goes back. I mean, I didn't write this for a narrative. I got right, but something that you know proved true again this year was I I made a joke in the offseason that every year the Angels play the try not to believe in this team game, 
Uh, and, the, and, like, you know, there was reason to think that team uh, was going to be a playoff team in April. You know, not only do they have Trout and Otani, but, you know, they added Brandon Drury, who everyone was excited about. And he, to his credit, performed fine this year. Hunter Renfro, they hoped, would do better. He didn't. Uh, you know, they added Tyler Anderson, who was bad. Reed Demers didn't take a step forward this year. Patrick Sandoval didn't take a step forward this year. Jose Suarez was out of the rotation by May. Um, you know, I mean, like, the bullpen was terrible during the, you know, during the time when they needed them. Um, yeah, I mean, they added Gio Urshela as well. He was out of the lineup for most of the season. Taylor Ward got hurt. Um, Anthony Rendon got hurt, and that's a whole saga in itself. Um, honestly, this whole season might have just ended this, the day that Artie Moreno decided he wasn't selling. Yeah, it just seems that energy just seems to keep up there. Unfortunately, yeah, and yeah, like a lot, a lot of rotate, a lot of guys in the rotation disappointed. I, I was like when I when I said they were a fourth place team, I said it's not because of the rotation, but part of part of why they tanked, um, unfortunately, was the rotation. Tyler Anderson went from getting Cy Young votes last year to being a very unproductive pitcher. Patrick Sandoval had a sub three ERA last year was not good this year. Um, yeah. So there were some things also that I wasn't accounting for that, that happened, unfortunately with, uh, with Los Angeles. And now we will move on to the incorrect narratives, which are, you know, objectively they're funnier to talk about. So that's why, that's why, you know, anytime we do hits and flops, we'll end with the flops because it's just, it's just funny. Cause you know, we we're self, we're self-proclaimed, you know, we like to think we're smart, but sometimes, sometimes things get proven wrong. Um, what is the first thing you want to talk about that you got wrong uh, this season? This is, so this was a narrative that I had more after 2022 than I did going into 2023. And it was true at the time, but I mean, you know, it's, it's just outright wrong now that, you know, the Marlins weren't making the right moves uh, through free agency and trades because, you know, when you look at 2022, the Marlins added Jorge Soler, they added Jacob Stallings through trade, they added Joey Wendell through trade. Uh, they added Avisel Garcia through free agency, and all of those flopped spectacularly. Uh, the best one was Jorge Soler only being five points below average uh, by OPS plus standards. But uh, Kim Ang had a fantastic year. Uh, in the offseason, she traded Pablo Lopez for Luis Arise, who was their most valuable player. I mean, he hit 354, had a 393 on base percentage. Had a 469 slugging and 830 at 861 OPS and a 133 OPS plus. Or on a team that desperately needed offense, Hemming went out and got a 133 OPS plus bat. Um, that is huge. And you know the Marlins probably don't make the playoffs without uh, the production they got from Luis Arise in his 147 games this year. It sucks that he's not going to be available for the playoffs, but um, you know that was big. The second best OPS plus they had on the team was Jorge Soler. Uh, 580 plate appearances. He had a 153 OPS OPS and a 128 OPS plus. Um, so both of those are huge. Those are big. Um, and then you get into what she did at the trade deadline. Uh, Jake Berger, who they, who she traded for Jake Etter, a prospect of theirs. Uh, Jake Berger hit 303, 355, 505 for an 860 OPS. Josh Bell hit 278, 270, 330, 338, 480 um, for his slash line. So, you know, when you look at the big moves that the Marlins made, and by the way, that doesn't even go into Jesus Lazardo as the number one pitcher for this team by B-War. Tanner Scott is the number one reliever. Uh, Kim Ang had a great year start to finish, and 
the Marlins aren't in the playoffs without the move that she made. That's just what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, got to applaud her for her offseason and midseason moves uh, this past offseason. And something, uh, that I, something that I said, uh, you know, during the tra- like a couple of weeks ago is that right now, I don't think there's a team that's had a better trade deadline from, than the Marlins. And this could change in the postseason. It can change years from now. You know, maybe Drew Gilbert and Luis Angel Acuna both end up being Hall of Famers for the Mets. And that's a great trade deadline. But right now, as it stands before the playoffs, you can't name a better team that had a better trade deadline in two month immediate impact than the Miami Marlins. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, my, uh, my first narrative that I got wrong, I, um, you know, I, I did not think the Orioles were in their window quite yet in their, com- in their competitive window quite yet. I did not think that they were going to be able to hang with, uh, the other, you know, big teams of the American league East. And not only did they hang with them, they uh, were better than all of them, uh, went 101 and 61 and won the American league East. Uh, I thought they didn't do enough in the off season to really compete. Uh, I thought that, you know, there were a lot of thing, a lot of fluky things from 2022 that weren't going to carry over to 2023, but no, they, they carried over. And then some, uh, they took that momentum that they built from June of 2022 and, uh, and they built on it more and they went out and won 101 games. It was surprising to me. Um, I did not think they'd be able to do it with the pieces they had and as low payroll as they had, but um, I mean, they they've arrived and then some, and they're going to be here for a while, most likely. Um, So yeah, I, I was very wrong on the Orioles. Um, So yeah. uh, What do you got for second narrative? My second narrative is in fact that the Orioles didn't do enough to address their team needs in the off season. Um, Yeah. You and I were both wrong at it. I had the Orioles finishing in last in the American league East this year. Um, and look how that turned out. They, they were there from the start. Like they started out hot and they just never cooled down at any point. Um, yeah, 101 wins is remarkable for that team. Obviously, um, if you had told me that they would have a better record than the Dodgers, I don't think anyone would have taken anyone seriously that said that, but that's what happened. Um, you know, the pieces that they have, they all just found a way to work. You know, Adley Rutschman, even if he, took a bit of a step back from last year. He was still a four-wind catcher. Um, he actually did have a higher OPS by three points last year, but uh, you know his defensive metrics were a little down. Uh, Gunnar Henderson is going to be the rookie of the year. He made an immediate impact on that team. Um, Ryan Mountcastle looked good. Ryan O'Hearn came out of nowhere and looked really good. Anthony Santander had a solid offensive season. Uh, and then most importantly, the rotation. Kyle Bradish has emerged as a legitimate ace. Uh, he's going to be the game one starter for Baltimore. Um, and, you know, the rotation still looks a little iffy here and there, but uh, they were able to get it done. Obviously, the bullpen was tremendous. Felix Batista sucks that he's not going to be available for the playoffs or next year, but that's okay because they got Yanir Cano, uh, who they got in the Jorge Lopez trade to just, you know, casually put up a 211 ERA uh, and a five strikeout to walk ratio. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, I was I was wrong on the Orioles, completely wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of people were, uh, you know, I mean, no one, I don't think anyone I'm had happy them. To, I'm happy to be wrong. Happy to be wrong on it. Yeah. Yeah. Good. You know, good for them. They've seen a lot of, you know, since 2014, they've seen a lot of teams succeed in the division. Um, and now they're jumping in on the party. Uh, one of my incorrect narratives 
was about Trey Turner. I was very high on Trey Turner. I thought that was like maybe the best signing of the off season. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was, um, I was like kind of, you know, crapping on MLB network for having him. I think they had him like as the 11th best player in baseball. And I, I was saying he's a top five player based on what he did like the previous couple of years. Um, thought he should have been rated a top five player. And this year proved to me that, yeah, he's not a top five player. Um, he started the year really, really awfully. Um, fortunately, well, fortunately for myself and my F4 team, he actually turned it up. Um, your, yeah. uh, your league winning F4 team. Yes. My league winning F4 team shout out. Um, you know, it, it, it's fitting that one of us was gonna, was gonna get it. Um, <laughs> but you know, good you know good for good for air good for air are there but uh but yeah as far as trey turner went yeah like he he had a good august you know good like yeah mid-august uh to september ish area but you know the the top five players in the league don't slump for the first four months of the year um so you know yeah there's there's a there's a great class of, of players ahead of him um, there's a lot of players that stepped up in, you know, my personal like best player rankings, notably like Ron Lacuna Jr. You know, M- Mookie Betts proved that he's, you know, here to stay as a really, really good player and not, you know, fade off into his 30s. Like, you know, a lot of players stepped up. Trey Turner was not one of them. Um, I thought he was, I thought he deserved more recognition before the year. But, um, you know, he he's a productive player. He's he was a productive player this year. He will probably be better next year, but, you know, not top five. So that's uh, my second incorrect narrative. Yeah. So my last incorrect narrative uh, was that the Cincinnati Reds were only going to have a decent pitching staff, and that was the only thing that was that there was to be excited with about them. Uh, and that was wrong. I had the Reds finishing last in the AL or the NL Central. Instead, they battled for second. They had the same record as the New York Yankees. They had the same record as the San Diego Padres. They had a better record than the than the New York Mets, uh, a better record than the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, you know, the team, just they battled, and a lot of it was because of their offense. In fact, their pitching, unfortunately, ended up being one of their weaker points. Um, as, a, as an offense this year, um, you know, they had the emergence of Spencer Steer. They had the emergence very late of Christian Encarnacion Strand. P.J. Friedel was solid this year. Matt McClain was excellent this year. Will Benson was a solid bat for them. Uh, Ellie De La Cruz is very fun, although, you know, although uh, not the best offensively so far this year. But, you know, all this goes back to what there was to be excited about with the Reds. Uh, you know, someone, one of our friends mentioned before the season, what do you think about the Reds' ro- rotation headed by Hunter Green, Nicola Dolo, and uh, Graham Ashcraft. And I said, I think that's the only thing to be excited about with the Reds this year. This offense, although they didn't get the job done late in the season, there was a lot of reason to be excited about what they have going forward. A lot of this team was carried by young guys. Uh, you know, I just mentioned all those names. Christian Encarnacion Strand is another one. Lovey Marte is another one. Um, and this is a team that is going to be on people's radars at the start of next year. Unfortunately, the pitching... Uh, was kind of their weakness with a lot of injury. Lodolo only made a handful of starts. For Ashcraft, I believe, is getting Tommy John surgery. Hunter Green was up and down on the IL. But, uh, yeah, the offense was the name of the game for the Reds this year, which I did not expect. Right, right. Yeah, I was definitely not high on that offense either. But my worst take of all 
um, mm-hmm. heading into this year, or at least what was proven to be my worst take, was about the Chicago White Sox. I thought that the 2022 White Sox, uh, you know, they were an outlier. Like they they lost 80, everything had to go wrong for them to win 81 games. Uh, <laughs> and they couldn't possibly get worse than that. But that is what we said too. Yeah. Yeah. It took, and, a, it took an anomaly for them to go 500. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but no, it got, it got way worse. They lost, they lost, uh, 20 more games, I, th- I think. Yeah. 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 Um, at least 20 yeah. more games. And, uh, and yeah, uh, they, so I thought the 2022 White Sox were the outlier. Turns out it was the 2021 Red Sox, uh, 2021 White Sox that were the outlier. Uh, you know, when they won 93 games, that was them at their best. I thought that was them, you know, performing like they should have performed. And I thought they were going to get back to something similar to that this year and win, you know, potentially 90 games. And I had them winning the AL Central. And they were, they could not be further from that. They went uh, either 62 and 100 or 61 and uh, 101. Um, either way, yeah, they went, they won 61 and 101. They lost 20 more games than last year. I had them, you know, I had this year as a bounce back year. I had Pedro Griefall as manager of the year. Um, and the, he might be fired. I don't know. Like, unless they want to give him a, a you know, a one more year to try and try and fix it if it's possible. Right but, again. but, uh, it can't possibly get worse. Right. 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 Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, Please. I could not have been more wrong on the Chicago White Sox this year. Even yeah. even when they started uh seven and twenty one, I I think I, sometimes I go back in the in our in our group chat to see old messages, and I think Nico Nico was talking about like oh White Sox you know potentially selling at the deadline, and this was around May, and I was like well they're not going to be selling at the deadline, they're going to be competing for the division, and uh, yeah I I kept being wrong about the White Sox, so you know um, unfortunately with the team on the south side of Chicago, I was very wrong about them. Uh up until up until the deadline, pretty much. I was pretty do wrong. You, uh, do you think Dylan Cease is, is like trade value can get lower? Or do you think this is where you strike? Um, yeah, that's that's an interesting question. Because um, I mean he's got three years of control, which is a decent amount, but he put up a four fifty six ERA this year, a three seventy two FIP, which is, you know, obviously proves he was unlucky, but you know. He's always been a guy with a high walk rate. He had, a, a, you know, four walks per nine this year, which is a lot, but it's only 0.2 ahead of what it was last year when he was the young runner-up. Yeah, and, you know, high walk rate also leads to less innings per start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'd be, you know, I'd be interested. I mean, if it was the right, if yeah, it was I mean, the right he, deal. He, he made one more start this year than he did last year, and he had uh, seven less innings pitch. Right, yeah, so... Yeah, if the White Sox stop asking for Brian Bayo quality uh yeah. talent, then you know, maybe they could get something out of that. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um because yeah, what else are they gonna do with him? So so yeah, those are our correct and incorrect narratives of the season. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, now we will now we will preview uh, all these series ahead. I mean, we got four wild card series, we got at least two of these days will have four playoff games on them. I mean, it's a, it's a real blessing. Like I, we're getting spoiled over here. We used to look, look forward to one day a year. We, yep. we were guaranteed four playoff games in a day. Now we got like three or four or something like that. At it's least, crazy. Yeah. At, at most like five, right? 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um very cool. Depending on how the LDSs line up, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Um so so yeah, uh we have oh, I'm I'm going in order here based on when these games are scheduled. So I'm starting with Rays Rangers, which starts Tuesday at 3 p.m. Um, so all you know, all the high school kids and, and elementary schoolers and middle schoolers, they can they can get out of school and watch this game. Um because it starts on the east right, coast. On the east coast, yeah. If you're on the yeah, west coast. If you're in the if you're on the west coast, tough luck. Yeah, sorry about it. You're gonna have to stream it on your computer while your teacher's giving a lecture. On your um, yeah, on your like on your like Microsoft 2007 computer. Yeah. I mean that, like, not can neither, load a Google Doc. Neither of us ever did that. That's why we have degrees. Yeah, no, totally. I definitely never streamed playoff games during school. No, never. No, that um, didn't happen in high school. Don't don't look at uh Brewers Cubs game one sixty three. Yeah. Um, that one I very much watched in class. Yeah, don't look at my search history on my assigned Google Chrome with and look look for an ESPN or a or an ML or an MLB TV link. Yeah, or, don't, well, maybe don't not for playoffs. About, uh, Astros, uh, Cleveland from twenty eighteen. Yep. Yep. Um, but yeah, anyway, regarding the Rays and Rangers, uh, they've matched up six times this year. The Rangers won the season series four to two and outscored the Rays 27 to 25 in those two series. Um, those series happened in mid June and mid July. So a, a decent amount of, of time away. N- none of these teams have actually really uh, matched up very recently in no. or these series. So, you know, it, maybe looking at the season series isn't the best narrative, but just for context, uh, as far as the Rays go at home, which is where they will be, they were 53 and 28 at home, while the Rangers were 40 and 41 on the road. And then just looking at team trends, the Rays were tw- are, are uh, 25 and 12 in their last 37 games for the second best record in Major League Baseball. And the Rangers are 50 and 52 in their last 102 games, uh, but they are also eight and four in their last 12. So depending on how you look at it, they could be a little um you know on the mediocre side or they could be you know trending in the right direction although although they also did just lose a series but what are you thinking about you know this this Rays Rangers series here so this is I believe a 2010 slash 11 rematch is that correct um right? yeah I think for both right for both yeah uh I like obviously you know a lot of the numbers point to the Rays the recent trends point to the Rays I think the the biggest weakness with the Rays heading into these playoffs uh, and we've said this in similar years is the the rotation, right? You know, it's you know it's Tyler Glass now at the one, Zach Eflin at the two, Aaron Savali at the three, which I think that's a perfect one starter, two starter, three starter, right? The best teams in the postseason have like two aces and a two starter as their one, two, three. I think the Rays have a true ace, two starter, three starter. Um, and the most debatable out of all those might be Glass now as an ace. Some people might even say he's a two. Um, so that's the thing that worries me the most, especially about the Rangers' offense, because that is no doubt the biggest strength on their team. However, I don't love the Rangers' rotation either. I think – I don't know if they have a true ace. I think they'll probably start a Valdi game one. They haven't announced it. If not, they'll start Montgomery in game one. Uh, if he hasn't gone recently against the Mariners, I think he went in the first game of that series. Um, but, you know, it'll be it'll be some form of Valdi Montgomery one and two, and then probably Dane Dunning in game three. Uh, they'll have Andrew Heaney coming out the bullpen. 
Um, a bullpen that is in desperate need of help, by the way. I mean, they, they struggled down the stretch. I think it's two, you know, very similar offenses, very similar pitching staffs with the Rays having a clear advantage in the bullpen. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, and, like, with the Rays offense, I mean, that's, we, you know, they, they got a lot of recognition for what they did in the first, you know, 40 games of the year. But, I mean, just throughout the season, they've been extremely good. Uh, last time I checked, the Rays team OPS plus was 114. So they're like right up there with the Rangers, which has become known for their offense uh with, yeah. with all their with all their weapons. Um and yeah the I think the Rays definitely have a, a clear pitching advantage. Uh the Rangers pitching started the year pretty good, but unfortunately they're they've they've fallen off in the past month and a half to two months. Um I put it down that the Rangers as a team, both starters and bullpen uh, they have a 5-2-1 ERA slash 4-9-6 FIP in their last 41 games of the season. That is the fifth worst ERA and FIP in baseball in this span. Uh, they've seen regression from Nathan Eovaldi and you know their entire bullpen. They've seen injury with Max Scherzer, unfortunately. Uh, and and yeah, like the, it's not. And obviously, you know, Degrom has been out since April. So yeah, I mean, it's it's I there's a reason why I said I didn't like at the beginning of the show, why I didn't like, you know, the Rangers falling out of the AL West winning, winning spot and into the five seed, because uh, it really seems like they're being thrown into the fire here, uh, especially coming off a, a road trip. And now they're extending the road trip to make it what, what'll be potentially an eight, nine game road trip. Uh, yeah. It, it, I'm, I'm pretty down on the Rangers right now, if you couldn't tell. Yeah. Um, I feel like if we're gonna do our series predictions, we probably have the same thing. Yeah, I got I got raisin too. I also have raisin too. Um, I would love for the Rangers to prove me wrong, but I think the Rays have been waiting to make a postseason run since 2020. You know, they they were out very disappointingly in 2021. They were injured to death in 2022, and they're still very injured this year, especially in the rotation. But they're still a 99 win team. Uh, they have an offense headed by Yandy Diaz who is a legitimate, you know, I think MVP caliber hitter as a player full on, probably not, but you know, I don't think, I still think people don't realize, I think uh, Yandy Diaz is like my Jose Ramirez for you um, because I don't think people realize just truly how good of a hitter he is. Um, you know, you had him with Randy Arozarena uh, in that, you know, in that lineup, you know, Randy's been, you know, kind of that guy for a while. I mean, you know, he's, he's famous for his postseason accomplishments he went off in the world baseball classic this year uh you add in you know Isaac Paredes hitting 30 home runs with the highest pulled fly ball rate in baseball um Josh Lowe broke out on offense this year uh and you know they have guys that can just find a way at any time yeah absolutely it's it's and pretty then, yeah and most importantly it's the bullpen right I mean that when the Rays are on they're on because of their bullpen with Pete Fairbanks with Colin Pochet, Robert Stevenson, Kittredge is back. I don't know how much they're going to actually have him pitch. Um, Kevin Kelly, Chris Davinsky, Sean Armstrong. Like, they have a lot of guys. Yeah, um, also, um, small sample size alert, but Josh Josh Lowe has six extra base hits in his last six games. Yeah. So, yeah, he, you know, he's turned it up as of, as of late. Yandy Diaz the mm-hmm. whole season has been great. Oh. Yeah, and, yeah, he he's... Both on yeah on both of our all underrated teams. Also, yeah, they, he also uh, 
You also have Junior Camanero, who's waiting to have a moment. I mean, he had his first home run the other day uh, in Toronto, and he's a guy that's waiting to burst onto the scene. He's a fringe top 10 prospect in all the baseball, called up this year after being in a random trade with the Guardians a couple years ago. Um, he's waiting to have a moment for himself. Right. And and as far as, you know, the starting pitching matchups and I think, you know, starting pitching matchups sometimes get a bit overrated. But, you know, considering the fact that they're around the same level of offense and also the Rays have a better bullpen like Glass now versus it's probably going to be Glass now versus Montgomery because Montgomery will be on um, four days rest heading into that one. And that's somewhat even. But Eflin versus Evaldi, Evaldi's really been struggling. Um and yeah, he has like a nine three zero ERA in his last, I think, five or six starts. It's mm. it's he's been pretty brutal. Um, so if he is thrown out there, he doesn't have momentum behind him. It'll he'll have to you know be doing something new. And you know if he has to fall out of the game early, I don't really love that bullpen either. So so yeah, um, pretty yeah, low in the Rangers. The Rays, but yeah. yeah. Uh, the Rays had a forty eight and forty four record versus games with a winning record this year. Um which, you know, isn't fantastic, but it's hard to have a winning record against those teams. You'll look at plenty of playoff teams that have even worse records, even losing records to some degree. The Astros had a losing record against teams with a winning record this year, uh, but the Rangers were 42 and 45. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I am concerned about, I also think playoff experience matters and, you know, one of these teams has it and the other team is the Texas Rangers. You know, I know that the Rangers have guys with playoff experience, you know, Corey Seager's a World Series MVP. Nathan Avaldi's pitched in big games before. Um, you know, Jordan Montgomery, I believe, was the game one postseason starter last year. Or no, Quintana was. But Jordan Montgomery started in the postseason last year, right, uh, for the Cardinals? Um, No, I think Michaelis won game two, unfortunately. Did he? Yeah, it was kind of wow. stupid. That is kind of stupid. No wonder they lost. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, I mean, the Rangers have guys that have played in the playoffs. I'm sure, yeah, Marcus Simeon was in a couple for the A's, but that was 2020. Um, which, you know, I I think we can say now that it's three years in advance, now it's three years in the past, we don't count 2020 as playoff experience, especially guys that only played in, like, a couple rounds. Yeah, I, like, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, like, I'm way more willing to count, like, Corey Seager's 2020 playoff experience more than, like, you know, I don't know, uh, like, like Lucas Aguilar, or, yeah. or like, or, uh, or, you know, some guy, Tyrone like, Taylor. Tyrone Taylor. Right. Yeah. Like some guy who played two games <laughs> in the 20 Jacob Nottingham. Season. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. Anything more in this series? Yeah. I mean, I got, I got raisin too. Um, I don't know. I just think, I mean, they're a 99 win team. Like they have the second best record in the American league. They have a better record than the Astros, better record than the Rangers, better record than the Twins. Two games less than the Orioles. Like, you know, very, you know, a bouncer to the other way, and the Rays could have could have been the one seed, and they could have been not playing this weekend. And we could be talking about Orioles-Rangers. But ultimately, we're talking about Rays-Rangers, and I think the Rays are going to win the series in two. Yeah, me as well. And also, yeah, the Rays are 25-12 and 12 in that last 37 for the second-best record mm-hmm. baseball in that span. And, yeah, like... They were, yeah, it, it seemed like they were struggling and they almost caught up to the Orioles toward the end there. Um, unfortunately, just came a couple games short. Um, so, yeah, now we get into the next American League series. That'll start at four o'clock on Tuesday in Minnesota. 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 
the uh <laughs> the twins and blue jays split their season series three to three uh, the Twins outscored the Blue Jays 28 to 26, and those series happened in uh, late May and mid June. And uh, the Twins uh, at Target Field, which is where this game, which is where this uh, this series will be played, uh, was 47 and 34 at Target Field, and the Blue Jays on the road in general were 46 and 35. Um, and then as far as trends go. Uh, the twin, the Blue Jays have been kind of like, you know, they've been sort of up and down. They don't really have a specific trend going for them. But the Twins are 18 and 10 since the start of September for the second best record in MLB. And their offense has actually been doing pretty well since the start of September as well, with a 126 weighted runs created plus. Although I'm not sure what their schedule exactly looked like, but, you know, they've they've been doing a lot of winning lately. What do you what are you thinking when you're out looking this uh, this Blue Jays twin series? Right. So these are two very interesting teams because, I mean, when you think of the Twins in the playoffs from a national baseball perspective, it's hard not to think about the fact that they've lost 18 consecutive playoff games dating back to 2004, I believe it was. Um, and, you know, you want to say part of a weak division, you want to say, you know, an AL Central team had to make it and this had happened to be the one. But the Twins have looked really good lately, especially in their offense. Um you know, even with the names that they're missing, with Byron Buxton out, with uh, Royce Lewis out, with Joey Gallo out, uh, yeah, you mentioned a 126 weighted runs created plus since the start of September, one of the best in baseball. Um, you know, they've found ways to get it done, and their pitching staff, I'd argue, you could put up with any in the playoffs, with Pablo Lopez in the one, uh, with what, who's uh, you know, Joe Ryan's in the three, who am I missing in the two there? Sonny Gray. Sonny Gray, yep. Sonny Gray, who's the man. been a, a fipster this year. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, their bullpen, I think, is pretty interesting. You know, they have some, obviously, some subtle names. Duran is not one of them. That's a guy that everyone knows. But, I mean, the Twins' bullpen has some uh, some names that you might not know very well, but uh, they are very strong, very good pitchers. Caleb Felbar is one that comes to mind. I believe he was your player to watch uh, this year. Louis Varland, Griffin Jacks, uh, Emilio Pagan. And then Chris Paddock coming out of the bullpen, the guy that we talked about with Mark Simon. Kenta uh, Maeda will be coming out of the bullpen. Jorge Alcala is an interesting name. Um, I think the Twins' bullpen is maybe the sneaky best part of their team. Yeah, yeah. They're they're an in- interesting crew. Like, you know, I was, I was very ready to be down on them, you know, considering they were, you know, AL Central favorites – uh, you know, since like the All Star break ish, like they were they were pretty yeah. comfortably ahead for a By while. The way, Carlos Correa also out completely forgot to mention him. Yeah, yeah, he might be in there. Um, but yeah, like they were they were only four games above five hundred as late as like late August, and then you know they've turned it up since then and and are now twelve games above five hundred. Uh, and seem mm-hmm. seem pretty legitimate. Like their starting staff is one of the best in these playoffs uh which is something to say i mean starting pitching does have uh some some value here in in the playoffs um as far as the blue jays go like i have no idea like i have no idea what their identity is like they could you know whatever they do this postseason will not surprise me they could get swept in two games yep. they could go to the world series and i won't be shocked because they have a high level of talent but have not really had the execution that i've expected them to have the past couple of years whether it be in the regular season or the postseason last year, I, I had them sweeping the Mariners last year and uh, I was, I was dead wrong about that. You know, they, 
you know, got shut out in the first game and then blew a seven run lead in the, in the, in the second game. So yeah, I don't really know what to expect with this blue Jays team. Like they could, they could hand the twins their first, you know, playoff victory in, in uh, 16 years or 20 yeah. years or whatever it is. Um, But going into the blue Jays now, I, you know, last year we saw the Philadelphia Phillies make a run to the World Series as the sixth seed, and at one point it really looked like they were going to win the entire thing. I think the Blue Jays are the team most likely to replicate that uh, as, as it pertains to talent on the roster. It has nothing to do with the fact that they are the sixth seed, but, uh, you know, they have a team that if all cylinders are clicking, that's a team that you don't want to face with the offense headed by, you know, Vlad Guerrero Jr. If he finds his way, which he looks like he has recently, Bobichet, George Springer, who has a ton of playoff experience with the Astros. Um, yeah, that's that's a fun team to get behind. And then they're in the rotation. It's Gosman, Bassett, uh, Barrios, who will be making his return to Minnesota, one of his returns to Minnesota. Um, Bullpen has some names at the back end as well, with Romano as a closer, with Jordan Hicks, Eric Swanson, Tim Meza. Uh, you know, they're a team that looks like, if if everything goes right, they could be the hottest team in the league. Yeah, for sure. And and to make an even, you know, to make a parallel to the last year's Phillies as well was like the Phillies were not hot heading into mm-hmm. uh heading into their playoff run. They were I think they had lost like 13 of their previous 20 and there wasn't like just momentum wise there wasn't a lot of reason to believe in the Phillies, but they turned they they flipped the switch uh you know, found some found some key performers and we're able to, you know, drive through the National League playoffs and and almost win the World Series. So yeah, the playoffs or the the Blue Jays are I think perfectly capable of that. They have about as much talent or even more talent than the Phillies did last year. Um so yeah, like I'm not I'm not surprised at anything they do. Uh they have the talent to do it. It's just it's just about execution which they've not met full expectations on doing that uh over the past couple of years. Um anything more before we do uh predictions? Uh, no, I think that's kind of it. Well, I would feel silly to, uh, think the twins are going to snap the streak. If, if they, if they do, if they do snap the streak, I'm, I'm fine being wrong about it, but I don't, I don't want to, you know, <laughs> and it's not even about the streak. I think the blue Jays are just objectively a better team. And I think they can, I think even if their pit, if their starting pitching is somewhat evenly matched, I think the blue Jays pitchers have, um, you know they they can out duel Minnesota's uh Minnesota starting pitching. I think uh, the Blue Jays' offense is better, and their bullpen uh, by ERA has been better this year. Uh, Blue Jays have a three point six eight bullpen ERA. Uh, Twins are at three point nine five. So the Twins or the Blue Jays were eighth in bullpen ERA this year. Uh, Twins are fifteenth. Um, so when it gets to those later innings, I also trust the blue jays a little bit more um so yeah i have the blue jays in two what do you have for this series i was a little more generous i put blue jays in three um i think there's a pretty even match i think twins will find their way into one uh but yeah i do have them snapping the streak wow yeah i don't have them winning i don't have them winning the series that that can be their world series is is snapping the streak (laughs) they win game two to like salvage a game three they're just like running on the field <laughs> celebrating like they won the world series. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's like those, uh, those guys that celebrate off going off the mound after strike two. It'll be like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I do have the Blue Jays winning this series, though. And I, I think this is the most, this might be, in my opinion, the most competitive series. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. They're they're pretty mm-hmm. ma- they're pretty evenly matched across the board. Yeah. Um, it's just you know, twenty year long narratives have gotten to my head. Yeah, and, uh, and I mean, like... to be fair, like the last time the Twins were in the playoffs, we wrote off the other team. Like, are you kidding me? The, well, obviously the Twins are winning this series, and they got swept at home by a team. Granted, it was the Astros with their lineup. But a team with a losing record, yeah. Like, like, come on now. Do yeah. You think the Twins are gonna lose to that thing? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not trying to be that wrong again. Um. <laughs> so yeah, I'm going. I'm going Blue Jays in two here. So that's the American League slate that we have uh, in the in these next three days: Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or just two days. Who knows? Um. According to my predictions, the AL playoffs will only be. The AL wildcard series will only be two days. Um, so now we get into the National League slate, which starts at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time uh, in American Family Field, where the three-seeded uh, NL Central champion uh, Brewers are going to be facing off against the six-seeded uh, Arizona Diamondbacks. Um, as far as... You know, the outlook of this series, the Diamondbacks won the season series four to two and outscored the Brewers uh, 30 to 19 in that's in those uh, two series, although they were a pretty long time ago. Those series happened in mid-April and mid-June, uh, which is kind of when the Diamondbacks were really going off uh, earlier in the season uh, at American Family Field. The Brewers were 49 and 32 and uh, the Diamondbacks on the road were 41 and 40. As far as trends go, uh, the Brewers have been doing really, really well as of late. In the last 40 games, they have a 27-13 and 13 record for the best record in Major League Baseball. Um, from a pitching standpoint, they have a 2.87 ERA and 3.84 FIP in their last 40 games, which is the best ERA in Major League Baseball and the third best FIP. And also from an offensive standpoint, they have a 107 weighted weighted runs created plus in their last 40 games, which is 10th best in MLBs. They're doing it from both sides as of late. Uh, how do you outlook this series? I don't know what to think here. I like, you know, remember last year when we watched the uh, the Guardians and Rays series and we're thinking, seriously, one of these teams has to play the Yankees after this? Like, why does one of these teams have to move on? <laughs> That's, That's kind of how I feel about both of these teams. Um the Brewers, yes, they're hot. The Diamondbacks, yes, they're fun. You know, I don't think a lot of people saw them making the playoffs this year, and they did. Uh, the Brewers, you know, have been, I don't want to say boring, but, like, you know, there's nothing that really excites me about that team outside of the pitching staff and bullpen. Definitely nothing on the offense outside of, like, I guess, William Contreras. Um, that really, make, like, really gets me excited to watch the team. Um, but... You know, I think it's two very similar teams. Uh, the Brewers have very strong pitching, a great bullpen headed by Devin Williams, headed by Abner Uribe, who I talked about recently, Joel Pamp, a uh, bunch of guys, which is fun, very cool, very fun. Um, obviously, they have Burns, Woodruff, and Peralta in their rotation, which is going to be probably the best one, two, three that any team in the postseason has. Um, that's, I think that's an actually like fair thing to say. Um, 
the Diamondbacks are starting Brandon Fodd in game one to give uh, Gallon a little more rest. And then should there be a game three, it'll be Merrill Kelly, um, which, you know, I like the game two and three matchups, but I don't love the game one matchup for the Diamondbacks. Right. Yeah, it, it, it's it's very <laughs> uneven. Here's my here's my spin, though. Uh, the Diamondbacks over the weekend had Zach Gallon face the Astros on Friday and uh, Merrill Kelly face them on Saturday. And Friday, they lost 2-1. to one, And uh, Saturday, they lost 1-0. They allowed three runs to the Astros lineup in two games. And that's the Astros playing for something. Right? Like, it's not, it's not the post-clinch mailing it in Astros. It's the Astros fighting for a playoff spot. And they held that lineup to three runs in two days. And Ryan Nelson pitched on Sunday, and the wheels came off a bit, but he's not starting a playoff game. The two that started on Friday and Saturday are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's it's really hard to look at this series, and I I I want to get one thing, one thing that like sort of bothers me when I look at like you know playoff analysis and stuff, is, and I've referenced it in like on Twitter and stuff, but. You know, I think a lot of people have like the Brewers is like, oh, they're they're the sneaky team. Like you got to watch out for them because of their starting pitching. And yeah, I mean, they have amazing starting pitching, but it takes more than starting pitching and bullpen uh, to win the World Series. And that's why I tweeted out the stat that, you know, in the last six years, since 2017, the team leader in starting pitching ERA has won the World Series zero times. The team leader in runs scored uh, offensively has won the world series three times half the time it's been the 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 offensive leader and runs scored um whereas with starting pitching it's been zero times so yeah like there's there's more to more to it than the starting pitching matchups and the brewers offense is very underwhelming however the diamondbacks offense isn't great um i believe their team ops plus this year is under 100 uh like like the Brewers and the Brewers have uh, have been trending better. As I mentioned, they were seven percent above average over the last forty games. So there is there is that. So it's it's kind of two teams sort of, in a way, cut from the same cloth, which which kind of confuses yeah. me a little bit. Both teams have very I think top heavy lineups where it's like good hitters one through five ish and one through four ish, and then the rest of it's kind of underwhelming. With the Brewers, it's Yelich, it's Contreras, it's Carlos Santana who's been hot lately, it's Mark Canna who's been hot lately. With the Diamondbacks, you know, it's Corbin Carroll leading off. It's Ketel Marte second, Christian Walker, um, you know, like the handful of guys uh, that they have, Tommy Pham, uh, maybe Gabriel Moreno. I think I like the Diamondbacks guys better than the Brewers guys on offense. Yeah, by, for sure. By hair. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, Christian Walker, I mean, has great home run ability. He's, he's had a weird, like, last month or so he was like he was slumping and then he had he went like he had like three hits two homers and a double and then went back to slumping it was weird i've been keeping a close eye on him for other reasons but um but yeah as as far as the diamondbacks go like yeah obviously they have Marte as you mentioned carol is such a weapon but yeah there are definitely like some some holes there but with milwaukee there's those same holes so it, it is weird to evaluate and at a certain point you do have to just look at the starting pitching matchups and see what's happening. And also I, I think one thing we should mention is bullpen versus bullpen brewers have a very, very clear advantage. You know, the, the diamondbacks, whether it be on paper or um, whether it be roster or numbers, like they, 
do not really keep up with the Brewers from a bullpen standpoint. Yeah, no, they definitely don't. Um, so I do want to get into this one. This is, by the way, also a rematch of a previous year, 2011, uh, the Niger Morgan series. Yes, who could for who could forget that? Yeah, who could forget that. Um, and just to back up on numbers, the uh, the Brewers were second in bullpen ERA this year, and the Diamondbacks were 18th. Um, so yeah, what do you got for predictions? I have I have Milwaukee in two. Um, I think game one is gonna go to the Diamondbacks, uh, just because I like the Corbin Burns versus Brandon Fodd matchup a little better for Milwaukee, and then from there I think it's kind of just gonna be, you know, Diamondbacks lose game one and the Brewers just take game two. Um, like kind of how I said earlier about how losing one game puts you in such a tough spot after playing so many, and then all of a sudden you lose one and your season's on the line. I think that's kind of the situation that the Diamondbacks are gonna be in. Um. I don't anticipate a lot of high scoring in these games. I really don't. Yeah. No. Um, like I think back to the 2021 NLDS with the Brewers and Braves where they lost, like, I think they scored like three runs total in the first three games or something like that. It was yeah. not good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, the yeah, only, it, only run they scored in their win was a Rowdy Tellez home run. Right. Yeah. It was, it was rough. Um, yeah, with the Brewers, um, I'm gonna the number, do we have an idea of who they're going to throw out there on Wednesday? I would assume either Woodruff or Peralta. Yeah. Yeah, they scored. Sorry, I'm sorry. They over. I overestimated. They, the Brewers scored two runs in three games. Yeah, I right. Said three, like a fool. Uh, they did score four runs in game four, but of course they lost that one. Yeah, yeah. And, um... Gallon pitched on Friday, so we would go Wednesday. On Wednesday, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm, I'm thinking. I think like, they might. I think they might go Peralta game two, just because like he has pitched more this year. Yeah, and he's like, been right, like Woodruff's the bigger name, and he's done very well in the time that he has pitched, but he's missed a large chunk of the season due to injury. Right, and right. Peralta is you know arguably just as good right now, so I would throw Peralta out there for game two, and obviously Burns game one. Yeah, I think yeah, I think um I, I would agree with Brewers in two. Um, you know, I, I was tempted to go three, but I think I think we've just seen a lot of we've seen a lot of uh, a lot of sweeps and I think that's gonna continue to trend in with this one. And yeah, I think Brewers take it in two. You know, that that game one matchup seems, you know, pretty overwhelming for the Diamondbacks. And uh I, I just like the way the Brewers are trending. And this isn't me making a declaration that they're a mm-hmm. sneaky team and that they're gonna, you know, they could they have a good shot against the Dodgers and Braves. I, I don't think that. But, you know, as far as the diamond as far as them matched up against the 84 win Diamondbacks, who haven't necessarily been crazy hot as of late. Um, yeah, I, I like that matchup for the Brewers. I like the home field advantage as well. They've done very well at home with a 49 and 32 record. And uh it's it's proven to work for them in, in the past, that home field advantage. Um, you know, their, their only win in the 2021 playoffs was at home and they did well in 2018 and all that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, um, I think, I think people might have to be prepared to be disappointed with this Diamondbacks offense over the next couple of days. They might, it, it, they might score zero to one to two runs, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, I'm taking Brewers in two. Uh, I, I really wanted to go against them, 
but uh, I think they're going to win in, in two yeah. games here. Here's the here's the thing that I think is fun, and I meant to get to this point earlier, but I kind of forgot. But, you know, with the, with the Diamondbacks having, you know, held the Astros and their lineup, you know, in win-now mode to three runs over two days, now they get to face the Brewers' offense, which is That's very true. fun because, you know, that was the, the, you're going from Astros to Brewers, which is much different, but at the same time, they scored a combined one run in those two games against, uh, I believe it was Christian Javier and Justin Verlander, uh, yeah. some combination of those two, and you know all both of them are solid pitchers, but you know moving from those two to Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff and Freddie Peralta, I don't like that. Yeah, plus yeah. plus the Brewers bullpen. This series is going to be like watching me play MLB the Show. Like I'm good at pitching but I cannot hit for anything. So yep. it's going to be some 2-1, 3-2 two, ball. You have, a, you have a chase rate of 85%. Yeah. <laughs> I have a whiff rate of about 50%. <laughs> that would be generous for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a hard game, on uh, at least on the hitting side. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we both have Brewers in two. Uh, now on to the last series of the docket which starts at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It will be between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Miami Marlins. Um, the Marlins actually won this season series 7-6. to six. Uh, However, the Phillies did outscore them 64-55, to 55, so it was a pretty close ser- season series between the two teams. Uh, Phillies are 49-32 and 32 at home this year. Marlins are 38-42 and 42 on the road this year so phillies you know have a great advantage at home marlins are under 500 on the road and the phillies success could be more measured long term over the last 105 games they are 65 and 40 for the fourth best record in mlb well the marlins have been really good over the past month and and really snuck into that uh uh now uh fifth you know uh fifth seed in the nl playoffs uh, they've gone 18 and 10 in their last 28 games, tied for the second best record in Major League Baseball. Um, and yeah, what are you thinking about? You know this this upcoming series. Uh, I'm thinking about you know the Phillies trying to avenge last year, the Marlins, known for their chaos throughout their franchise's history. This is the fourth time now they've been in the postseason. Uh, two of those times they've won the World Series. One of those times they knocked out a Cubs team that a lot of people had hoped for, uh, and then, you know, kind of put the final nail into the coffin to the, the Cubs, like, championship window, because the next year was when they sold, um, and then, you know, lost the Braves, but, um, you know, it's it's an interesting two NLEs rivals, you know, the Marlins are fun, you know, to, to have in here, um, Phillies have the postseason experience, obviously, last year, um, yeah, I think that's really all I have on that before I say my actual prediction. Yeah, it's it's um, I'm I'm really tempted to like go in the Marlins direction here, just because like, this is the most un unanal, you know, unanalytical thing I'll say all all uh episode is they're they're they seem very scrappy, like they <laughs> they just seem like they're gonna get it done, but yeah, but you know, go you know going away from that, there there are some pieces that. They've added midseason that um that have made them a better team. They also, you know, I mean, they beat the, the they beat the Phillies in the season series, um, particularly against Aaron Nola, who's the game two starter. Uh, you know, Aaron Nola had a 
6.75 ERA against them this year in three starts with a 5.07 FIP. Um, so yeah, I mean he he didn't do well against he didn't do great against the Marlins. Um, but yeah, I mean the Phillies like Phillies being at home for me is is a huge factor. Like mm-hmm. you know the the Marlins were under 500 on the road. Well, the Phillies like we saw how lit up Citizens Bank Park was uh, last year, and you know like the only team that could beat them in that park was the world series champion Astros. Like, and it it took, and and they didn't do it easily. I mean, they had to throw a, they had to throw a no hitter, a combined no hitter and, uh, and win a really, really tight game with a great catch at the end by Chaz McCormick. McCormick, And that was after, I think they still got outscored in citizens bank park because that was after they, uh, they they got crushed in game three. Yeah. They lost seven to nothing or something like that in game three. So yeah, I mean, the Phillies being at home for me is a huge factor. Uh, what do you got for predictions? Uh, one more thing I will say before my prediction is last year, we watched Bryce Harper completely take over in the postseason. He hit 349 with an 1160 OPS, six home runs, 13 RBI, seven doubles. Um, imagine what he does with a healthy UCL. Yeah, that's, that is the factor. Um, I'm going Phillies trending too. pretty well too. So, I'm going uh, so, so. Yeah, I, I, it's, I cannot. It's, it's Wheeler and Nola at the top of that rotation. I don't love that Luis Arise is out for the Marlins. It sucks, but uh, I don't know. Like, hey, listen, if the Marlins prove me wrong and become chaotic once again, good for them. I'm gonna be on the safe side here. Yeah, uh, Daniel's got Philly in, in two. Also, Bryce Harper in his last 12 games has a 12-10 OPS. Mm-hmm. Um. So he's he's trending in in the right direction as well. Um yeah, I mean I was I was tempted with the with the Marlins, but you know, just roster wise, they don't really compete in in any way. The Phillies have the better offense. Uh, I believe there's better starting rotation, also the better bullpen. I, I was looking, I was, you know, looking at you know bullpen ERA ranks just to see like I thought the Marlins were doing better in the bullpen, but they actually uh have the uh I believe 10th worst. A bullpen ERA this year. It's outside of Tanner Scott. There hasn't really been much out of the bullpen, at least as of late, uh, with the Marlins and uh, with the Phillies. They actually, you know, known for not really known for having a bullpen, uh, having a great bullpen. They actually have the uh, sixth best bullpen ERA this year. So they've they've fixed some things up over there. Um, so yeah, I will go. I will go Phillies in two as well. You have, um, you have sweeps across the board. I have sweeps across the board. Yeah. I hope it doesn't happen. Yeah, but I I put one series going to three. Yeah, and and yeah, I mean, uh, I think you bring up a good point with the Marlins' offense being debilitated without Luis Arise. Um, you know, they still have some good pieces in there, but they got to face Wheeler and Nola. The and thing I think... that uh, sorry, just sorry to cut you off, but the thing that really has me going Phillies in two is like the thing that wins games the postseason is home runs. Like you look at every year the the record of the teams that out homer their opponents and I just can't see the Marlins out homering the Phillies. That just that doesn't compute in my head. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree with that. And yeah, I like I like the Phillies offense going against Lazardo and Garrett much more than I do the Marlins offense going against Wheeler and Nola, although you know Nola hasn't had good numbers against the Marlins, but you know those are three starts. He's only got one start here, 
Um, but yeah, I I feel like you know, feel like I can be proven wrong in any of these series. Yeah, but you know, Phillies at home is is really the difference maker for me. Um, especially, I think if they played a couple in uh, in Miami, it might be a little bit different. But that that environment is crazy. Um, so yeah, I mean, anything more before we get into players to highlight? No, let's do it. All right. So now for the final time this year, um, we will get into our players to highlight. These are every single one is going to be a uh, a member of a playoff team, whether they be playing uh, this week or they're a, a team that's that's on a buy right now, um, because, you know, we want to see where they're trending, whether they're trending in the right or wrong direction heading into the playoffs, because if we if we selected a, a pirate like I did last year, it's like, yeah. oh, great take that in the off season but you know yeah. these guys are going to be playing games this so. guy this guy had a great 12 games watch out for him in april yeah <laughs> exactly exactly Can't do that so without further ado here is our monday october 2nd 2023 edition of how about that he's striking out less walking more and he's also making better contact turning into a strikeout machine just out of nowhere he's been excellent all around this year and he is getting a how about that so for my how about that, I'm going with a guy that I briefly mentioned, uh, very, very briefly mentioned earlier in the show. I'm talking about Robert Stevenson of the Tampa Bay Rays. Also, I'm going reliever diving for the fourth time this nice. year, uh, ending ending on a splash. Uh, but Robert Stevenson, since he was acquired by the Rays in early June by the Pirates, he has a 235 ERA and a 245 FIP in 38 and a third innings pitch with Tampa. And over his last 18 plate appear- 18 appearances, Dating back to August 11th, he has an 0.56 ERA and an 0.76 FIP. Uh, he has in 28 strikeouts, one walk, one home run allowed, and five hits allowed in 16 innings pitched in that time. His 1.2 F4 leads all relievers. Now, uh, this is where the this is the end of the Robert Stevenson. How about that? And the beginning of the Robert Stevenson cutter. How about that? Because that's really what this is. On June 18th, Stevenson threw a cutter. For the first time in his career, he had never thrown it before. He thrown it in a with the Rays uh, in one of his in in a game in June, like one of his first appearances with the Rays. And since then, he has thrown a slider sixty nine point nine percent percent of the time. That is by far his primary pitch, and there's a good reason for it because the whiff rate against his cutter is fifty nine point nine percent, fifty a whiff rate. Of almost 60% on a cutter. Not only did that lead the majors this year by 15%, but it leads all season since 2008 with at least 100 swings against the cutter by 4%. And by the way, that is out of 1,117 seasons. Uh, and when hitters do hit the ball on the very rare occasion, they hit 101 and slug 253 against this cutter. That average is the lowest among the 105 pitchers with at least 50 plate appearances ending on cutters. The slugging percentage is fifth lowest. The WOBA, which is uh, 151, is the lowest. Again, uh, the next lowest WOBA is 187. His is 151. And for expected numbers, his 123 expected batting average on his cutter is tied for the lowest. 244 expected slugging is the fifth lowest. And the 160 X WOBA was the lowest. Um, His 3.8... 3.8 run value per 100 is the second highest, and the uh, 88.3 mile per hour average exit velocity against his cutter is the ninth lowest among the 135 pitchers with at least 25 batted balls. And lastly, he has a 25.6% sweet spot rate against his cutter. This guy went from not throwing a cutter at all 
to throwing maybe the best cutter we've seen in this in the pitch tracking era, uh, which is asinine. It's ludicrous. It's insane. And that's Robert Stevenson and his new cutter. Yeah, Robert Stevenson and his cutter. How about that? Um, yeah. It, I, again, I, a sixty percent whiff rate. Yeah, against uh, any pitch is ridiculous, but a fastball is even more impressive. Yeah, I was about to say a cutter is usually like thrown to induce weak contact, not necessarily mm-hmm. get a swing and miss. Like you, you, you use the breaking stuff like a slider. To you get know, the swing and you miss. know, it was funny. There's 82 plate appearances ending on his cutter, and I naively thought that a 50 batted balls would be a good, uh, you know, benchmark for the total pitch parameters. But then I forgot he only has 41 because everyone strikes out against it, and thus they do not have batted balls against it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's crazy. Um, so yeah, shout out to Robert Stevenson, uh, probably going to be, yeah, pitching against the Rangers, uh, in, in the coming days. Um, my, how about that is a different American league East pitcher. Um, and he will not be pitching this week. He will probably be pitching next week and struggled to start the year. Um, but seemed natural. He, he is a rookie and I'm talking about Grayson Rodriguez, um, who has really turned it up and become a potential, you know, real reliable starter option for, for the Orioles. Like one of the things I, one of the things I was probably right about in the first few months of the year was uh, that the Orioles starting rotation did not really inspire much, but with Bradish and Rodriguez emerging over the past few months, it seems like they really have something there in that starting rotation, at least with those two. Uh, so with Grayson Rodriguez in his last 12 starts, which dates back to his second start since being brought back up after he was sent down midseason. Uh, in those last 12 starts, he has a 2.26 ERA and 2.76 FIP in 71 and two thirds innings pitched. And out of 58 qualifying pitchers in the span, his ERA ranks second and FIP ranks fifth. And out of 71 pitchers with a thousand plus pitches thrown in the span, Grayson Rodriguez, Grayson Rodriguez's Expected slugging against ranks fifth and his expected Woba against ranks fourth out of 71. And uh, much of this, much of this actually has to do with, uh, with batted ball data and not strikeouts because actually his strikeout rate has gone down in this span, not by much, but, but very slightly. However, his uh, contact against him, his overall quality of contact against him has gone down, uh, you know, a lot more. His average exit velocity against has gone from 91.9 miles per hour before the span to 88.2 miles per hour, 3.7 mile per hour difference in average exit velocity. And his average exit velocity on average exit velocity against on fly balls has gone from 97.1 miles per hour to 89.6 miles per hour. Uh, That's a seven and a half mile per hour difference right there. And his barrel rate because of this, you know, drop in exit velocity on fly balls has gone from 13% before the span to 3% in the span. And out of 105 pitchers with 150 plus batted balls against in the span, Grayson Rodriguez's barrel rate is the lowest in baseball. And uh, therefore his home run rate has gone from 5.6% to 1.1%. And out of 58 qualifying pitchers in the span, his home runs per nine is the lowest in baseball. Part of this has to do with him getting less ground balls or more ground balls, excuse me, and uh, a lot less uh, good quality contact that's, you know, threatening to go over the fence. Uh, his ground ball rate has gone from 40% before the span 
to 52% in this span and out of 150 out of 105 pitchers with 150 plus batted balls against in this span his ground ball rate is 13th highest also his line drive rate has gone from 32% to 20% and out of 105 pitchers his line drive rate is 14th lowest and his sweet spot rate has gone from 43% to 26% and out of 105 pitchers his Sweet spot rate is the fourth lowest in baseball after having a very, very above average rate uh, before the span. Uh, also, we've seen a bit of a change in pitch mix from him. Before the span, he had an 889 slugging against his cutter, which he threw 11% of the time, and he's basically dropped that pitch from his mix. He now only throws it 1% of the time. So, uh, so yeah, Grayson Rodriguez has made some adjustments that has made him have much uh, much better quality of contact against him and, you know, made him a much more effective pitcher and a potential uh, playoff starter in the Orioles rotation. So Grayson Rodriguez. How about that? Um, all right. And now we will go from the highs to the lows where we're talking players and subjects that have been underperforming with our Monday, October 2nd, 2023 edition of slightly alarming statistics. Yeah, so for my slightly alarming, I'm going with uh, another Oriole, uh, a guy on the offensive side of the ball that's been struggling lately. It's Cedric Mullins, uh, who since September 12th is slashing 131, 169, 213 for a 382 OPS and a one single weighted runs created plus. You can't even really call it a weighted runs created plus because it's one. He's created, yeah, he's a one weighted run created plus in this span and uh, minus 0.5 F4. Uh, among the 168 qualifiers in this span, Cedric Mullins ranks second lowest in batting average, last in OBP, fourth lowest in slugging, and then last in OPS, last in weighted run created plus, and last in F4. Uh, yeah, he's been one of the worst hitters, maybe the worst position player in the league in this span. Uh, before this span, he had a strikeout rate of 20.5%, and in this span, it is up to 32.3%. It has gone up 12%. Uh, before this span, his walk rate was 10.2%, and in this span, he has slashed it to 4.6%. It is more than just half of what it was. Uh, his chase rate has gone from 25.6% before the span to 36% in this span, so he's chasing 11% more. Uh, that's never a good sign. And so that's his, uh, that's his swing decisions, and his batted balls have been bad as well. Before this span, his ground ball rate was just 36.1%. But in this span, it is up to 41.4%. It is up over 5%. And his fly ball rate has gone from 32.3% before the span to 24.5% uh, now in this span. So that's not uh, that's down 8% on fly balls. And also, 19.5% of his batted balls during this span have been negative 55 degrees or lower or 55 degrees or higher, which means it's very, very straight into the ground or very up in the air. 19.5% of the time, that is the 12th highest rate among the 271 hitters with at least 25 batted balls in this span. Um, it's been an honor doing year four of players to highlight, but we are ending it, unfortunately, with Cedric Mullins. Yeah, Cedric Mullins. Slightly alarming. Um, yeah, pretty uh, pretty tough there heading into the playoffs. Yeah, he, um, he hasn't been quite the same since the injury. He... Uh, Suffered a groin injury back in May, came back for a brief stint, went back on the IL, and yeah, it just hasn't been hasn't been quite mm -hmm. the same uh, since then. Um, my slightly alarming, 
is uh, a guy we referenced uh, earlier in the show, and they didn't get too much into detail, so I could highlight him here. But I'm talking about Nathan Eovaldi of the Texas Rangers. Um, he also had an IL stint, and since coming off the IL, he is not um, he has not been performing. Since he came off the IL on September 5th, he has a 9.30 ERA and 7.88 FIP in 20 and a third innings pitched. And out of 107 pitchers with 20 plus innings pitched since Eovaldi came off the IL, he has the worst ERA and FIP in baseball. Uh, out of 126 pitchers with with 300 plus pitches thrown in the span, Eovaldi's expected slugging against is ninth highest, and expected WOBA against is seventh highest. Also, his walk rate has gone from seven percent before the span to 13 percent in this span. And out of 107 pitchers with 20 plus innings pitched in this span. His walk rate is the seventh highest in baseball. Uh, he has also gone from throwing 47% of his pitches inside the strike zone to 42% of his pitches inside the strike zone. And out of 126 pitchers with 300 plus pitches thrown in this span, his in-zone percentage is third lowest. And, is, and out of 61 pitchers with 400 plus pitches thrown, his in-zone percentage is the lowest. So he's throwing a lot less pitches in the strike zone, therefore giving a lot, giving out a lot more free passes. Seventh uh, worst walk rate in the league since he came off the IL. Uh, also, his strike rate on no strike counts has gone from sixty-five percent to fifty-eight percent. So he's had a much harder time getting ahead in counts or even just getting even in counts. And his average and you know that's that's all the uh, that's all the control stuff. Now we get into the quality of contact, which has also been really, really bad for Nathan Eovaldi. His average exit velocity against has gone from 87.8 miles per hour before the span to 93.1 miles per hour in the span, nearly a hard hit ball. And his barrel rate has gone from 7% to 13%. And out of 128 pitchers with 50 plus batted balls against in the span, his barrel rate is the 12th highest in baseball. And specifically on those on those barrels, much many of them are pulled, and his pulled barrel rate has gone from 1.5% before the span to 9.7% in the span. And out of 128 pitchers, his uh, pulled barrel rate is the fifth highest. And on those pulled barrels, you know, just generally speaking, pulled barrels get better results than you know something that's hit straight away because they go to shorter ends of the ballpark and you know hitters tend to like to pull the ball because they get better results on it and hitters are six for six with five home runs and a double on the pulled barrels against nathan eovaldi and uh you know therefore his home run rate has skyrocketed it's gone from 1.7 percent before the span to 7.1 percent in the span and out of, out of 107 pitchers with 20 plus innings pitched in the span Nathan Eovaldi's home runs per nine is the second highest in baseball. So nothing really going right for Nathan Eovaldi, you know, a potential playoff starter for, for the Rangers. But yeah, a 930 ERA in his last six starts, 20 innings pitched, uh, giving up a lot of home runs, a lot of pulled barrels, and not throwing the ball in the strike zone when he's not giving up that hard contact. So yeah, nothing really going right. And um, part of the reason why I have the the Rays in two, because if he if he starts the game, I'm not really putting too much false trust in him. So, uh, Nathan Eovaldi. Slightly alarming. Um, that's it for season four of Players to Highlight. That's it for Good season four. Yeah, we we did collectively. 
between the two of us, uh, 41 of them because wow. uh, 40, 42 regular season episodes and, and we don't do them at the all-star break. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Although we, I did, I did, I didn't do them the one show when we did the uh, all underrated team. Yeah. Well, we've both done at least 40. So yeah. Good for us there. Heck of a job. Crossed every team off the list as our goal was to, you know, mm-hmm. got our last team almost a month ago now. Yep. So yeah, that does it for players to highlight. Um, And yeah, lastly, we'll get into just a bit of news. Some, you know, sentimental, some very unfortunate news. Um, But we will start with what, M- Miguel Cabrera? Start with Miguel Cabrera, who obviously retired. Uh, yesterday for the Detroit Tigers uh, and for Major League Baseball after a 21-year career in Major League Baseball. He finishes his career with 511 home runs, tying Mel Ott. He finishes with, I believe, 3,174 career hits. Um, Yeah, an iconic career. Uh, We've seen a lot of you know, legendary players retire in the last few years. David Ortiz in 2016, Jeter in 14, Mariano Rivera in 13, Pujols last year, Miggy this year, and a couple of others. Um, for me, this is really the one that's making me feel old the most because Miguel Cabrera, I think, is the first of these types of players to retire where, you know, I grew up during their peak. I watched them at their best. I saw them in their, you know, decline old man years, so to say. And I saw them at the end of their career. Um, you know, with Pujols, I didn't really see him um, at his peak. You know, I didn't watch him in 2005, 2008. Um, Ortiz was, didn't really have his old man years. Like, he was kind of just always in his prime. And then he went out in his prime. And Peter and Mo, I was too young to, to watch those moments as well. But Miguel Cabrera, to me, is, you know, when I think of the era when I grew up watching baseball, Miguel Cabrera was the best hitter in the league. And if you said anyone else was better than him, you were wrong. There's no baiting that. Um, so it's sad to see him go. Um, I was lucky enough to be at one of his last games, technically the game where he hit his last home run. Um, <laughs> but it, you know, it it definitely I definitely felt a lot of emotions watching him in his last game yesterday. You know, he was always such a mainstay, regardless of you know, regardless of how the Tigers were as a team. They obviously were really tough to watch from 20, like, 15 through 23, uh, but, you know, you could always count on Miguel Cabrera being there. Um, you know, you could always count on him being, like, around an average bat for those last few years, but, you know, he was an icon from, like, his peak, which was, you know, I guess you could say probably, like, 20 through 16, but really from, like, 2010 through 13. Like, that was the four-year span where he was the best hitter in baseball. For a four-year span, a three thirty-seven batting average, uh, 1037 OPS, 178 OPS plus, a triple crown, two MVPs. Um, there was just nobody better. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, he was he was overwhelmingly the best hitter in baseball for a little bit. Um, just looking at, you know, if, to break it down statistically, um, not just including hitting, but uh, just Fangraphs wins above replacement from 2007 to 2016, a 10 year span there. He was the leader in Fangraphs wins above replacement. Uh, so for a 10 year span, you know, best best player in baseball. Uh, he was just consistently there. You know, he had looks like I think 10, uh, yeah, 11 consecutive 100 RBI seasons. You know, no matter the situations you're dealt, 
you know, you, you can't be, you can't be a bad hitter when you're, when you're driving into hundred runs, 11 straight years. Um, and yeah, from 07 to 2016 also, uh, he had 456 batting runs. The next best had 369. He was almost a hundred batting runs better than the next best guy in that 10 years, in that 10 year span. So, I mean, he was, yeah, he was overwhelmingly like the best guy, like a guy that no one wanted to face. He was not easy to strike out. He was not easy to get out. He didn't have really any bad tendencies in his prime. It, it seemed like, you know, I'm sure there's some scouting reports from 2012 that may have them, but you know, pitchers seem to have hard times finding them. Uh, obviously, you know, triple crown winner, but that's just the first of many things you can bring up with him. Um, just, uh, yeah, an amazing, amazing hitter, like flawless for, for a few years there. And, and yeah, I mean, when he, when he arrived at, with Detroit, like his first year there, they were a, a 74 win team. So like they were, you know, he, he was there for some bad before they even got, you know, to the playoffs for four consecutive years. And then obviously his, you know, as his career tapered off, so did the Tigers, but, but yeah, I mean, a major reason as to why they made those playoffs four years in a row, obviously an MVP for, for two of those years. And, uh, and yeah, he'll have a, an amazing legacy within Detroit because he was a major part of, uh, of why this, they succeeded in the early 2010s. It was the reason they succeeded. I mean, he was, yeah, he was the guy, um, you know, even like growing up uh, as a team that faced Miguel Cabrera in a playoff series, like there was, you know, as nervous as I was anytime he stepped the ball, he stepped on deck, there was some excitement knowing like, this is the guy, this is the best hitter. Uh, this is the guy that, you know, you're going to be telling, you know, this is, it was one of the first, like, I'm going to tell my kids about this guy uh, type of players that I saw growing up. Uh, no doubt. I saw him the first, uh, the first major league baseball game I ever went to actually uh, was Tigers and Yankees at Yankee stadium. Uh, I knew next to nothing about like not next to nothing, but I didn't know a lot about baseball. I definitely didn't know anything about Detroit Tigers. I knew Johnny Damon was on the team and I knew him because he was a Red Sox and he was a Yankee prior, but uh, Miguel Cabrera, I believe hit two home runs that game. Um, trying to find the game here in his game log. Yep. There it is. He went, Two for three with two home runs in that game. The Tigers lost, but I remember thinking, man, like this Cabrera guy's pretty good. Obviously, clearly he's doing something right. And, you know, the, those two home runs raised his average to 340 and his OPS to 1077. So, you know, Miguel Cabrera was kind of my part of my introduction to baseball, um, which is, you know, very cool that the guy that I was like, oh, wow, this guy's pretty good, ended up being, you know, a future first ballot Hall of Famer. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think for me, uh, I I kind of learned about him through like MLB 2K because uh, like yeah. I would I would face him in like franchise mode, and I I hadn't heard of the guy. Like I knew um, back in like the 2K eight days or 2K ten days, like you know I knew about I think Gary Sheffield was on the team at at one of those times, and like I knew about him, but there's there's this guy hitting third, and he's got like oh, he's got, you know, 95 power and also like 90 plus contact. Like he, he doesn't really have any weak points. Like, I don't know, who, who is this guy? Why aren't more people talking about him? Like he hits, you know, he hits 300 easily. And uh, he also hits like 30 home runs a year. Like this guy's crazy. Um, But yeah, yeah, no, like he was that guy. He was, I think he was underrated for, for a little bit. And then, you know, eventually got his, uh, you know, got, got what he deserved and the recognition he deserved. Um, And yeah, just, to drop another stat, he's the only member of um, 
the club that hit you know 500 home runs and 3,000 hits, only member of that club to also hit over 305 uh, throughout his career. So, yeah, I mean, like a, a true special talent. So you know, feel you know feel uh feel happy that you you know we got to witness this in in our lifetimes here. Yeah, I mean, we got to witness. Yeah, the best part of Miguel Cabrera in our lifetimes. He finishes with a career average above 300, an OPS of 901, uh, which is definitely a nice, nice solid number there. Um, I feel like we haven't touched enough on his Marlins days because uh, they were good too. Uh, you know, I feel like people forget, you know, when he was with the Marlins, he had a, an eight, nine, or a 929 OPS career, 313 average in, you know, 138 career home runs. Like, he was a stud for the Marlins. Uh you know, he was known for being the centerpiece in one of the most lopsided trades ever. Um, and he won a World Series there. Like, he, you know, it sucks that he never brought a World Series to Detroit. But, you know, I'm very happy that he got to win a World Series regardless of where it was. Regardless, he was only a 20-year-old at the time who, uh, you know, still, he, he hit a walk-off home run in his Major League debut. Um, right? Like, that happened. He hit a home run off Roger Clemens in the World Series at age 20. Um, I, the, the world should have known then if they if they didn't yeah yeah for sure like that that was crazy as, as a 20 year old to do that against uh such a legendary pitcher who is still you know pretty much in his prime with roger clemens um and yeah in a big mm-hmm. series and yeah like it was part of the reason they were able to win that world series you know at such an improbable team to to be able to win that world series i'm trying to pull up um like what he did in those playoffs, although I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, in that World Series, it wasn't great. But in the in the NLCS, he had a 10.27 OPS against the Cubs in a seven game series. Like big reason why they they were able to go to the World Series. Yeah, pretty crazy, pretty crazy career here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, you know, he's a he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. I think we all know this. Um. Mm-hmm. And it was cool, I will say, you know, just off of my firsthand experience, seeing in his last week as a major leaguer, like the clear impact that he had on the city of Detroit, even with, you know, the the fun Miguel Cabrera memories kind of faded after 2016-ish. Uh, that was the year where, like, the Tigers almost made the playoffs, but they just missed. Uh, and after that, it was a bunch of, you know, uninspiring teams. Miggy very clearly showing his age starting at age 34 pretty much but you know regardless of all that like everyone was just there to see him uh you know it's very clear the impact he made on that city um through through all the 16 years that he played there um and they actually just rehired him as a special assistant of baseball operations i believe so he'll still be working with the team um it was very cool to see everything that happened this weekend with like his kids like announcing him when he came up to the plate, uh, with him coming that going up to first base in the eighth inning and getting that play uh, before getting taken out. The ball just, of course, found him. Yep. Yeah, it, it was on almost pee that ball out too, which would have been awful. Yeah, it was pretty. It was it was a it was a pretty good moment. Luckily, the season was able to end at you know Comerica Park in front of the home mm-hmm. crowd. Yeah. Um, you know, give something, you know, give something to end the season well on. And it's one uh, of those, I think it's one of those things where it's like, you kind of forget about the season ending in that moment. 
Yeah. Like, no, you know, no one's thinking about the game, that the fact that there's not a game tomorrow, that there's not a game next week, there's not a game for six months. Everyone's kind of just happy to be there to celebrate, you know, the turning of a page of one of the most memorable eras in Detroit Tigers history. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, definitely agree on that. I mean, um, anything more on, you know, the, the Miguel Cabrera uh, retirement here? I think that was kind of it. I mean, you know, if you if you watch baseball during the early 2010s, you remember the the era where if you tried to say anyone was a better hitter than Miguel Cabrera, you were wrong. And there was just there was just nothing else to say there. Exactly. Exactly. Um and another another player that was on the Major League Baseball field as a player for the last time this past weekend was Adam Wainwright, a 200 game winner. Uh you know, known for some really good, for some really quality postseason success, was uh, the guy that got the last out in the 2006 World Series against the Tigers, and uh, and yeah, like uh, another very good career will be remembered by his franchise as well, very fondly. Um, what were your thoughts on you know Adam Wainwright's uh, career and, and impact on the Cardinals? Yeah, I mean. It's the Cardinals have had this weird transitional period the last couple of years where, you know, Pujols retired with them, Yadier Molina retired with them, and now Wainwright was kind of the last piece to go. And obviously this year was not one to remember outside of the retirements, um, you know, on the stat sheet, but he did get his 200th win, which was, which was big. You know, everyone was rooting for it. Um, and I think people are also just going to remember that, you know, he was kind of going into until his 40s. I mean, he had a... 366 fifth last year uh, and 191 innings pitch too like he was a good pitcher at age 40 um and he got hurt to start this year which might have had something to do with it but you know i think we're gonna remember adam wainwright as a guy who you know fought until the very end um you know a solid pitcher for the cardinals for 18 years uh, a guy who unfortunately had to miss a world series because of tommy john surgery but who came back even stronger than before right i mean Cy Young runner-up in 2013, third in 2014. Uh, you know, obviously a champion as a closer with them uh, early on in his career, but, um, you know, a, a no doubt an icon in Cardinals history and a guy that really fits, you know, the like what the organization has been known to be about throughout its history. Yeah, and as cliche as it is to say, uh, but, you know, in, in the free agency era to have a guy play 18 years with one team is pretty special. Um, yeah. Pre- pretty special that the Cardinals were able to keep him around for so long, such a, you know, high quality pitcher for, for that long. And, you know, he was able to, yeah, as you mentioned, able to succeed for a while. He won, you know, not to lighten it up too much, but he won 2021 Christian to snowballer of the year uh, because he was, he was doing it. He had a 200, he had 206 innings and a 305 ERA in his age 39 season it was pretty it was something special to see like he got Cy Young votes in his age 39 season like that's that's something to that's something to admire there uh you know just kept it going till the end this year wasn't his best but I mean there weren't really there weren't really any years like that uh, any other years like that in his career um like you know he kept it going and you know it it didn't really caught it like whether or not he did did what he did you know the cardinals would be kind of in the same spot no matter what so that does you know lighten things up a, a bit he didn't really cost 
I wouldn't say he really cost the Cardinals anything in his last year. Um, but yeah, as far as his career goes, I mean, 18 years with one team is is very good. Um, the postseason success and you know the the clutch factor, like you know, I'll I'll always remember like that 2013 game five complete game uh, against the Pirates to advance them to the NLCS, mm-hmm. a year in which you know they went to the World Series and were two wins away from winning it. And yeah, a two eight three career playoff ERA in 114 innings pitched is pretty nuts. Like uh, one of the more clutch, one of the more clutch pitchers in you know the the wild card era when when there are more playoffs. Like he came out and more often than not was very successful in the postseason. Yeah, um, a guy that you know I think, you know I mean uh, by the way also we never talked about him as a hitter. Um, Silver Slugger Award winner in 2017. Um, he got an at bat uh, over the weekend, and you know, I uh, let's just forget rate stats because he's a pitcher. He had 143 career hits. Like that's yeah. that's crazy. Yeah. Don't, like don't don't mind rate stats. Pitchers aren't supposed to be hitters. 143 base hits in his career. 39 doubles. 10 home runs. Two triples. Uh, triple in 2016. When when did he triple in 2016? I gotta check that out. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the last like solid hitting pitchers that the sport ever got to see. Yeah, he was able to get four, uh, four point four offensive wins above replacement, um, yeah. in his career, which is quite a bit for a pitcher. Like, um, you know, that's that's based on him versus other pitchers. That's what offensive war is yeah but um but like yeah so that means he in his career he got four more wins through his batting uh than than your average pitcher would get in as a as a hitter Mm -hmm. um yeah Yeah. that's that's pretty nuts like he was yeah he was he was a very good hitter a lot of why his wins above replacement is is increased is because of is because of uh is because of his hitting like the adjustments yeah yeah um because his b war his overall b war on you know when you when you go to his uh baseball reference page it's 44.9 and some of that has to do with his hitting because it it accounts for total wins above replacement so yeah he he was a very good hitting pitcher like not an automatic out which most pitchers are obviously um during that era but yeah um all right, should we get into our final little uh, tribute? Yeah, let's do it. This one, this one really hurts. This one is much different. Yeah, this is uh this is a bit somber. Um, Tim Wakefield, former uh pitcher for the Pirates and most notably the Red Sox, um, he passed away from brain cancer at the age of fifty-seven, and yeah, I mean, very very known within the Red Sox organization, very known within the city of Boston for a lot of charitable work that he did. He won a Roberto Clemente award in 2010, which obviously accounts for on-field and especially off-field performance and and what he did with, uh, with the city and, and, and his charitable work. Um, yeah, it's, it's an extremely, uh, extremely sad, you know, yesterday was an extremely sad day for, for uh, anybody who follows the Boston Red Sox. 
Yeah, Tim Wakefield, most known for uh, being a knuckleball pitcher, um, 19 years in the big league, um, two-time World Series champion, both in 2004 and 2007. Uh, during the, uh, when I was in high school, I read his book, his uh, biography, for, it was for school. I don't remember what the actual project was, but I read his, his book, and the thing that stood out to me the most is that, is just the way that the city backed him up because of the way he backed the city up. Um, you know, he wrote in his book about um, giving up the home run to Aaron Boone in 2003 that sent the Yankees to the World Series and extended the Red Sox curse another one year. And, you know, he walked off the mound after that, was very emotional, thought that he was going to be known as, like, the next Bill Buckner. Um, that never happened. You know, people were, you know, I think if you talk to any Red Sox fans about, like, their thoughts on Tim Wakefield giving up the home run, they'll be like, yeah, you know, he did it, but this and this and this, right? Uh, because he all pitched very well in that series. He pitched on the Red Sox for 17 years. Um, like you mentioned, a lot of charitable work done to the community. And, you know, just a guy that I think the entire city of Boston was happy to have as a representative of them for so many years. Uh, yeah, the more I'm looking into it, you know, he was um, the – he was an honorary chairman of the Red Sox Foundation and a captain or a Red Sox team captain of the Jimmy Fund, which uh, the Jimmy Fund is uh, known to raise funds for cancer research uh, based out of Boston. So, yeah, I mean, he was, you know, obviously known as a, as a pitcher, a 200 game winner. I had the honor of going to his 199th win um, back in 2011 and witnessing his 2000th strikeout with the Red Sox. Um, not for career, but with the Red Sox. And yeah, I mean, Boston loved him and, and loved him for good reason. He did quality work on the field and even, in, you know, a lot off the field as well. Um, it is beyond a tragedy that he has gone so soon, only 57 years old, um, into brain cancer as well. Um, just a devastating way to go out. Um, there's been a lot of uh, former teammates of his, both with the Pirates and the Red Sox, that have you know, spoken out, whether it be on social media, whether it be through interviews. And, you know, I think it's said, you know, we can talk a lot about, you know, you know, what Tim Wayfield meant to the game of baseball to us personally as baseball fans. But, you know, I think anything that you hear from his former teammates, from people who, uh, you know, were around him during his baseball career, like they're, I think they would tell you everything that you need to know. Yeah, exactly. And, and it just seems, it seems like, everything you would perceive about him as a fan is, is really true. Um, and yeah, unfortunately this all kind of happened all, all very suddenly. I mean, he was on the Nesson broadcasts, you know, this past summer, uh, you know, mm -hmm. doing, doing the pre and post post game shows and, and sometimes, uh, you know, in game commentary up in the booth with, with Dave O'Brien. Yeah. Like, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately all very sudden, um and yeah i mean i imagine there was more stuff he was going to do off the field uh but un unfortunately you know that'll have to be carried on um in in other ways so yeah a, a real unfortunate um death to you know the red sox community baseball community um you know his his uh charitable community and you know hopefully the rest of us can uh can pick up the slack there so yeah, any anything more before we uh, close out the episode? I think that's it. All right. Well, that shall do it for this installment of Above Replacement Radio. We hope you uh, enjoyed this episode, the playoff previews, 
players to highlight, um, you know, our narratives and stuff, and also uh, how we had to end the show. So if you were listening in a, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and want to watch the conversation as it happens, go to the YouTube channel and subscribe to the YouTube channel. It is called Above Replacement Radio. We hope you enjoyed. Uh, uh, follow us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Chris underscore Gianta. Follow Daniel on both Twitter and Instagram at Daniel underscore Kern. And follow the show Instagram at Above Replacement Radio for all the show needs. We hope you enjoyed this one and we hope to see you. Uh, we hope to see you next time where we we will be recapping the wildcard series and previewing the ALDSs and NLDSs. Uh, see you next time. This conversation. This conversation is over. Is over.